Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia, and by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information on their latest activities, please click on the links which you can find on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. What happens when market-oriented policy reforms butt heads with a single-party state's strictly maintained limits on political freedoms? That question sets the terms for Eric Harm's fascinating new study of destruction and modernity in Vietnam entitled Luxury and Rubble, Civility and Dispossession in the New Saigon, published in 2016 by the University of California Press. Eric is an Associate Professor of Anthropology and newly appointed Chair of the Council of Southeast Asian Studies at Yale University, and he's speaking with me, Nick Cheesman, currently a visiting researcher at Kyoto University and co-host of the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Eric, thanks for joining us to discuss Luxury and Rubble. Thank you, Nick. It's a real pleasure to be here on this program. I've enjoyed listening to your discussions of all the other great books in Southeast Asian studies. Thank you. Let's begin in the same place as the book begins, literally on a bridge suspended over a river. Suspension bridges, as you say, do not appear by accident, and this bridge is suspended between two sites where the action in your book takes place. Where are we and why is the bridge there? And what can we see depending on which way we look? If you stand in downtown Ho Chi Minh City and look down the river past the Saigon port, you'll see this long suspension bridge, which is actually modeled on a bridge that was built by the Australians in the Mekong Delta. But this one was built by the Vietnamese. And that, of course, is a source of great pride for people living in Ho Chi Minh City as they imagine themselves emerging from the long struggle, post-war struggle of reconstruction. Obviously, the war was a long time ago, 
but that ongoing process of building up and rebuilding the economy, rebuilding the infrastructure of the city has, a, of course, been going on since 1975. Since the post-Doimoy period, the post-renovation period, building and construction have intensified. And if you live and work in Ho Chi Minh City and you talk to people about building and construction, one of the things I want to articulate in the book is that becomes a symbol of progress and regeneration. So if you go up on the bridge, if you look one direction, you look into District 7. And if you descend into District 7, you're usually doing it in a luxury automobile. And you'll take the left-hand turn and you'll do a long flyover over working-class districts, eventually descending into a new urban zone, as they call it, called Fumihung, rich, luxurious prosperity. If you look in the other direction, you'll be looking at District 2, which is a newly developed district. You'll see large plains of demolished homes surrounded by rice fields and rivulets and canals, dotted by new construction, some of it resettlement housing, some of it new luxury housing as well. And the book looks at these two places as a way to enter into the dramatic story of urban transformation and redevelopment that's taking place in Ho Chi Minh City. And the reason I start with that bridge is I want to take the view seriously, the view of modernity that one has as one looks down on the city, but as one descends down into the city, one also confronts the struggles and challenges of building a bridge like that, which Again, if you look at the bridge itself, its pylons and support structure is rising itself out of demolished homes in the working class city in order to facilitate a new kind of connection in the city. In addition to that, the bridge itself is a piece of infrastructure which is tied in to a large scale transformation of the city, which is shifting the boundaries of what constitutes the inside of the city or the outside of the city. And so I became fascinated by the way when you have a massive piece of infrastructure like this that itself becomes kind of a ring road, that changes the boundaries of what is inside and what is outside. And what used to be the outside of the city is now becoming central to its new development. So one of the things that I'm interested in as the Saigon River itself once was the boundary of a city, now it's becoming this kind of a central passageway that carves through the middle, working almost as the Seine River or the Thames River work in European cities, which is a major transformation of the urban morphology of Saigon. And also, if one were to compare it, it would be similar to the major transformations one sees in other river cities of Southeast Asia. So as you've already alluded, the two districts correspond to the two keywords in the book's title, and they're also the rubrics for its two parts, a luxury and rubble. And though they're separated in the book's contents, you insist that you want to study them in a single frame. What do you mean by that, and how do you go about doing it? In some ways, it's a quite straightforward approach. I became interested in new urban zones because the social science scholarship of new urban zones generally critiques them. But when I was working and living in Vietnam, I realized that a great number of the people I would talk to on the ground were quite enthusiastic about these places. And so then I wanted to tell that story from a Vietnamese perspective, but at the same time, I didn't want to be naive about the political struggles and the forces of exclusion and capital extraction and all of those kinds of things that classic studies and urbanism refer to. So it occurred to me that 
what would be fascinating would be to study both the actually existing new urban zone, the so-called luxury, and the construction and building of a new urban zone for the city yet to come. And it occurred to me that in that process, not only would I be able to understand both of these places better, but I would be able to get to the double ambivalence that struck me as central to the ways in which many Vietnamese are experiencing the challenges and contradictions of urban development in their contemporary city. A general sense that I commonly feel when I'm doing research in Vietnam is that people are simultaneously excited about the possibilities that are offered by places like Phu Mi Hung, this new urban zone. At the same time, in the same breath, oftentimes the same person will be vociferously critical of the forces of dispossession and extraction, um, corruption often tied to real estate development, all of those things. So it seemed to me that the only way to tell this full, complete story about one of these zones is to tell the story of the other. And then by bringing them together, one could actually get a relatively robust understanding of the complex ways in which contemporary Vietnamese understand and experience what scholars will abstractly call rapid urbanization. As both the book and the podcast are organized in two parts, let's spend the remainder of this first half of the episode primarily in luxury, as it were, and then in the second half amid rubble. Can you take us now from standing astride the bridge and load us into one of those luxury cars and into District 7? What do we see when we get there? Who made it and what was there beforehand? There's a couple ways to describe that. I spent the last year in Singapore and when people would ask me about my research, I would often say, imagine you have a classic Southeast Asian city, Ho Chi Minh City or Bangkok, and you took a little slice of Singapore and you decided to helicopter it into the city. That's what Phu Mi Hung in a broad sense is like. If you took a luxury Singaporean housing development um, with all of its amenities, uh, its master plan, the accoutrements, upscale housing, international schools, international hospital, foreign chain restaurants and those kinds of things, and you helicoptered it into the city, that's the best way to imagine the kind of space that we're looking at. Now, some of the early scholarship on that would just basically look at that process and see in it a kind of obvious violence, which, of course, I, I don't necessarily disagree with. Um, it's a kind of top-down, highly planned environment that is brought in by a series of elite actors. In the case of Fumi Hung, the conceptualization of the project itself is most often attributed to a man named Lawrence Ting, who was a Taiwanese land prospector, who in 1989 came to Vietnam, among other places, as he was basically looking around Southeast Asia for places that reminded him, in his own words, of Taipei when he was younger, and then having the benefit of witness to Taipei's rapid urban development, and of course the massive profits earned by uh, developers involved with that development, looking for places in Southeast Asia, and he stumbled upon Vietnam, which at that point was not quite open to business, but had already gone through the famous Doi Moi, because Doi Moi, if you remember, um, occurred in 1986. And at that time, there were some what they call in the literature fence breakers, a lot of them associated with Vauvan Kiet, who was at one point party secretary of Ho Chi Minh City, later went on to become prime minister of Vietnam, 
and Vavin Kit had this group called the Nyom Tu Sao, which means the Friday group. So behind closed doors, this Nyom Tu Sao was already starting to imagine the possibility of new forms of urban development and export processing zones and those kinds of things as a potential source of income to aid the reconstruction of Vietnam, which, as everyone knows, since from the period from 1975 through the mid-80s, you had the massive flight of capital, in particular Chinese-Vietnamese capital, especially after some of the border conflicts with China and the suspicion of ethnic Chinese within Ho Chi Minh City itself. So Vaughan Kiet was the first to actually start talking to some people who had been affiliated with the previous Saigon regime, but had these business ties. And as part of his kind of early stages of opening up the country to foreign investment, he started asking these people to cultivate their contacts. So even before Lawrence Ting arrived, some of these local members of the Nyam Tu Sao had already been conceptualizing new urban development projects. Lawrence Ting shows up, and there's a kind of meeting of the minds in a sense. They decide to collaborate with Lawrence Ting. And between 1989 and 1992, when they had the formal kind of signing of the agreement that would allow Fumi Hung to develop, there was all of this machination that had to go on to transform the legal system to enable the possibility of this new kind of arrangement, a joint venture. So Fumi Hung was one of the first joint ventures that involved the Vietnamese governmental authorities giving the land and foreign investors to give the financial capital to produce a project like this. Now, the reason I'm dwelling on all of this is because when you look at it in this perspective and you step back a little bit from the easy critique, which, of course, I don't want to naively dismiss, but if you just take the easy critique of urbanism and you say, oh, master plan developments are bad, they're a transformation of the pre-existing social structure, they're anti-democratic, and those are all great critiques when you're talking about North America, or Australia, perhaps, where you want to have a civic participation in urban planning. In the Vietnamese case, in 1989 and 1992, you had major top-down planning that wasn't going so well, and so these quote-unquote, fence breakers, teaming up with someone like Lawrence Ting, whatever you think of them as potential neoliberal subjects, in their own consciousness and in the consciousness of most people who you talk to in Vietnam who have a kind of understanding of the historical development of the city, they're all styled as these almost revolutionary, transformative vanguard figures who are willing to stick their neck out in the face of a kind of repressive government control of the urban context. So to me, that was just a fascinating transformation of the way in which I came in to look at this place, Fu Mi Hung, this luxurious place. On one hand, it would be a very easy critique, just walk in there and say, oh, look, all these rich people who want to settle in an enclave. And of course, there's some degree to which that's true. But when you got down and you talked to people about the narrative of the process of building this, they were all kind of revolutionary, almost like dot publishers who were pushing the boundaries of uh, political change. Not unlike the peasants in Benedict Kirkblit's work who are transforming policy and then the government follows, right? So it's very interesting to see that. Then on top of it, a, a character like Bovenkit, who was prime minister when the actual projects were approved, if you read the literature about post-war Vietnam and know anything about post-war Vietnamese politics, 
almost every single prime minister that you read about is critiqued as some kind of corrupt, nefarious actor in the, the, the academic scholarly literature. On the streets, if you talk to Vietnamese people, they'll have something negative to say about almost every single prime minister, except for Vaughn Van Kiet. If you were to look and read about Vaughn Van Kiet through the lens of Western academic literature, he would be a clear apostle of neoliberalism, easily critiqued, you know, in terms set by someone like David Harvey as, you know, delivering capitalism at the expense of, of the working class or something like that. But within Vietnamese discourse, he's the one guy who nobody ever calls corrupt. So in my mind as a scholar, I wanted to understand how I could reconcile this notion that on the one hand, yes, clearly this is an exclusive, limited access enclave of wealthy people, many of them who've gotten their positions through nefarious means of some sort, at the same time that there's this notion of this area that is politically progressive. Mm. Now, you asked in your question, what did it look like there? The area that's called Fumihung, which is now called District 7. If you go visit the Fumihung office or you talk to an architect who worked on the project in the early days, almost universally when you walk in, they'll show you some images. They'll say, here's a photograph from a helicopter in 1992. And look, it's empty. Here's a photograph in 2002 or something like that. And look, there's a new urban town here. I became very fascinated in this discourse, which I, I call civilizing the wasteland, because it almost perfectly replicates the same exact civilizing discourse of the so-called march to the south that's often described in Vietnamese historical narratives. But if you look at those first pictures that people show you when you visit their office, all of the land is divided into plots. So I became fascinated in this idea of emptiness. And then as you start looking into it, all of the districts in Nha Bè had dins, which are the Vietnamese communal halls, which are indications that there was a village there, right? There's village names, there's records of land holdings and all of these kinds of things. So to me, I became quite fascinated in this logic of emptiness and how the peri-urban edges of cities are actually starting to become structurally parallel to the wildlands of former agrarian civilizing processes. So all of these things became tied in to this story that I was trying to tell about Fumi Hung. It's a kind of ideological story of the march of Vietnamese progress, but it's an ideological story that isn't only told by the elite. Why does that particular narrative of turning nothing into something resonate so much with contemporary Vietnamese is what I was after. Hmm. So what's the answer to that question that you've just raised about the resonance of this idea of civility or civilization? I think the question is important precisely because, as you indicate, so much of the literature and certainly literature on Southeast Asia as well has been taken up with civilization as an elite discourse. And you began your discussion in those terms, but we're ending up now with your interlocutors. What is it about this term that captures their imagination. Thanks for raising that. I'm an anthropologist. Uh, as I like to joke, I even say this in my intro anthro class, one whiff of the word civility and the stench of power and hegemony is bound to follow. I mean, that's the standard anthropological take on it. And I actually agree with that completely. And we've seen great studies of that throughout Southeast Asian studies. And, you know, it's something that's fascinated me ever since I started research in Vietnam is that the word van men 
which is itself a Sino-Vietnamese word, like Wenmin in Chinese, it's easily identified as an artifact of state power. But then I started to say to myself, as early in the colonial period, there were Vietnamese writers like Vu Trong Phuong who were critiquing civility, mocking it in their own way, right? But the discourse persists. So how do you explain that? So instead of my knee-jerk reaction, which is to just make fun of civility in a sense, I decided to take it seriously and to ask people what they thought about when, when they said something was civilized, right? What, young kids, they would describe Phu Mi Hung as civilized. Older people would say Phu Mi Hung is more civilized than other parts of Vietnam. And these weren't members of the Communist Party who were saying this as some kind of propaganda campaign. They were people talking about other residents of the city. And I started to realize that civility itself has a kind of double valence. You know, civility can be an artifact of power, but it can also be a mode of resistance. It can be a way in which you call out others to act in particular expected ways, right? It's a kind of cultural mode of power that can operate from the bottom up as well as the top down. So let me give you an example that I tell the story of a young woman who moves to Fumihung. She's from Hanoi originally. She's divorced. There was domestic violence and his family was rude to her and all of this kind of stuff. So she fled Hanoi basically to make a new life in Ho Chi Minh City. She gets to Ho Chi Minh City She's a single woman in her late 20s, early 30s, living in these alleyways of Ho Chi Minh City. If she encounters anybody, they're constantly talking about her behind her back, wondering about what she's up to. She has a, a male friend visit the apartment. They'll say all kinds of nasty things about her. But then she decided to move to Phu Mi Hung, and she says, Phu Mi Hung is more civilized than these other places because they don't talk about you behind your back. They don't look at you in the alleyway in these particular ways. The men behave, and she felt safer living in this particular place. As she was telling the story, I was recognizing that there's actually a gender dynamic to these kind of new calls for civility that are emanating from the bottom up in Vietnamese society that are not only about the state telling people how to be a civilized citizen or something like that, but everyday people are telling others to treat them with respect and dignity, which is another aspect of civility. And people are mobilizing that critique, not only against their fellow citizens, but they can mobilize it back to the government itself. And in constructing Phu Mi Hung as this quote-unquote civilized new urban zone, people are actually, and they would often tell it to me in rather explicit ways, they're creating an alternative to the contemporary Vietnamese state, which is both operating on a cultural level and also the corrupt practices of the Vietnamese state, which are easily critiqued as uncivilized. Now, the problem is, oftentimes that very language which is empowering to somebody in one context can itself then lead to a disenfranchising alter ego in a sense, right? So this same woman who I'm describing who mobilized civility as a way to critique contemporary gender dynamics and urban space in Ho Chi Minh City also distinguished herself from other people in the city who she deems uncivilized, which then leads into that same kind of elite discourse of the urban zone itself. Is there a class dimension to this? I, empirically there is, but I, my question rather is whether or not ideationally that this consciousness is itself emerging in a, a way as to enable the creation of a new kind of class, one, as it were, that is present and aware of its own coming into existence. In the book, I don't articulate it in those terms, 
And now that you mention it, in some sense, I'm kicking myself for not doing so. Maybe I should write an article that explores that. The way I would frame it is that empirically, clearly, there's a class consciousness emerging there. But the word civility is a surrogate, in a sense, for a class. And it's a surrogate that operates in a way that simultaneously makes people aware of their consciousness, but also occludes their ability to see the degree to which that consciousness is founded on a form of exclusion. Mm -hmm. People can say, I'm civilized because I have a consciousness of others at the very same time that that articulation of that civility occludes the experiences of others who they are claiming to not be civilized. And I think this is part of the anxiety of contemporary Vietnam. You know, I use the word anxiety loosely. I don't like to put societies on the couch, so to speak. But there's an ambivalence going on where people see in others forms of exclusion and exploitation, but don't see it in them themselves. And they see themselves as the vanguard of a kind of new form of almost democratic, civilized politics. But you can't talk about democracy and civil society in formal political ways. So civility stands in as a way of talking about how people should act in the world, which is kind of a political statement at the same time that it implies that there's lots of people in the world who aren't acting as they should. It's inherently exclusive and in that way a kind of emergent class consciousness, but it allows people not to imagine themselves as part of an exclusive mm. class. Isn't that, in a way, though, that the essence of the notion of civil society understood as a society in which, generally speaking, people don't love each other, but they do routinely trust one another to do the right thing? It seems to me that your interlocutor's notions of civility really aren't so far removed from some classical liberal ideas of what civility is and, and why we would want it. Well, I think that's precisely what I'm trying to say. In Vietnam, if you use the word civil society, you're subject to political suspicion. If you talk about civility, you're using a government discourse that has a long genealogy that makes sense to everybody. Now, people do talk about civil society, but they have to do so almost in a bold gesture. When you talk about civility, you're just telling people to behave. Eric, we'll pause for a moment for a message from one of our sponsors, and when we return to The Rubble, we'll turn. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where today's guest is Eric Harms, author of Luxury and Rubble, which in addition to being available for purchase as a printed book, is also available online for free download. And we'll put a link to the open access download site on the webpage that features this interview so that you can access it easily. Eric, congratulations on getting the book out to the world free of charge. And how did you do it? Well, thank you for asking. It was Really wonderful to have this open access because it's reached a Vietnamese audience in ways that none of my other work has ever done before. Aspects of it have been translated in Vietnamese papers and things like that. The way it happened is quite simple. Reed Malcolm of the University of California Press, after the book had gone through peer review and all of that, 
told me about this new initiative they had at the time called Luminos OA, Luminos Open Access, which the University of California makes uh, available to authors. You have to come up with a bit of a subvention, which depends on the book itself. And, uh, you know, that's something you negotiate with the press. I'm fortunate to be at a generous institution where I was able to request uh, subvention funds from my department, the Council of Southeast Asian Studies, and the Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies to basically pay the production costs of the book. I feel that's a great model, actually, because one of the problems with open access is that we forget that academic labor needs to be paid. Not me as an author, I'm paid, I have a job, but the behind the scenes academic labor is just as important. Editing, copy editing, printing, you know, all of the hard labor that goes into making a book. And we have to be very careful with open access models that sometimes just say everybody should be doing this for free because we risk leading to unemployment in the academic publishing field. So I think that institutions that have the means where all of this academic publishing leads to the careers of scholars, that scholars and institutions should be really trying to find ways to you know, support the publication of their books that will make it available to others for free of charge, but without undermining the economy of those who, whose labor depends on the production of these books as well. Before we go into the rubble of the book's title in this part of the discussion, a question that I was remiss not to ask in the first part of the interview concerns your ethnographic interview data. How did you go about generating this data? So the book is, uh, it's an ethnography, but one of the critiques that one often gets as an ethnographer is that one has low data points or something like that. So when I made this project, I made a carefully concerted effort to interview at least 100 people in each place that I was doing my research. The exact numbers are greater than that. Not every single interview was a three-hour ethnographic interview, and not everybody was a key informant. But what I did was, for the first several months, I lived across from Tutiam, the District 2 area, and I went every day in the morning around 5 a.m., crossed the ferry, which existed at that time, and walked around the district usually ending up at this place I call the Rubble Cafe, which appears in the book at one point, and then just talk to people about their evictions. And people were extremely interested in talking about it. I had zero problem getting people to talk. I would go to the cafe and immediately people would say, who are you? Why are you here? I say, I'm here doing research about the rubble surrounding us. And immediately they'd tell me their stories. They'd get me on the back of their motorbike and drive me to their friend's house who would pull out all these papers and show me everything, right? So I did that for two solid months in the beginning of the research. Just every single morning, like seven days a week, I would take the ferry across and wander around and talk to people and go through these networks. Eventually, I became good friends with several families and would you know spend the whole day hanging out at their house um, and would do that for the rest of the year, basically. During that period, I was all by myself. My family was back in the U.S. and I was just doing like 24 hours a day ethnographic research. Then after the winter holiday, uh, my family joined me and we moved to District 7, which is the luxury of the book. And as I lived there at that time with two daughters and my wife and myself, we rented an apartment in a luxury housing development. It was, I think, in many ways, very important to be there as a family because 
when you, you know, doing research in a master planned urban development about a kind of what's it like to live here is a lot different than doing research with a bunch of people who are angry about being evicted. You know, you don't knock on people's doors and say, like, tell me about your life. You have to use this kind of snowball method to meet people, usually over dinner in local restaurants and people see you sitting there with your family. They have kids and they start talking and they say, what are you doing here? Where do your kids go to school? And you have the kind of classic organic conversations that are so central to understanding social life in an anthropological way. So then we lived for six months there in that situation. And I would spend a good part of the day in Fumihung in the luxury, uh, hanging out with new friends that were meeting that way and uh, conducting ethnographic research, and then also commuting over to District 2, crossing that Fumi Bridge often to get there to, to do more follow-up research in that place. So what happens there in District 2 over the course of more than a decade, and why did it happen? The funny thing about District 2, especially when compared with Fumi Hung, is that actually the project for District 2 was around much longer than the project for Fumi Hung. But Fumi Hung, by the time of my research, like really by around 2004 or something, was already a thriving new urban development. And Tu Tiem was just enthralled in this kind of massive eviction process with people refusing to go, people complaining about low property compensation and all kinds of loans the government had taken out to pay, but they weren't really proceeding. So it's fascinating in that sense to compare those two as a kind of success story mirrored by a, a kind of long, drawn-out, complicated process. And from the very beginning, uh, Tu Tiem, which is immediately across the Saigon River from the old colonial District 1, right? It's in District 2, was this kind of jewel of possibility. And in fact, back in that day when Lawrence Ting came to do his land prospecting, he wanted to build there. But they sent him off to Nyabe, which became District 7, kind of laughing as they sent him, saying like, ah, oh, we're sending this Taiwanese guy off to the boonies. He'll never develop anything. And we're saving this for us Vietnamese who know this is the golden land, right? Fast forward several decades later in the 2000s and 2011, when I'm doing my research, District 2 is still mired in controversy. The evictions are well underway, but the project itself was approved in 1993. In 1997, 1998, they said they were going to get started. Nothing really happened. About 2002, they created the Tutiam ICA, Investment and Construction Authority, and that was charged with the land reclamation process, you know, um, and the dispossession, basically, um, but they call it land reclamation. And so it was this long process. 2002, a few families went, and then over the period, gradually, you would see the piecemeal dismantling and demolition of the area until by around 2011, some reports in the newspapers, they would say about 75, 80, 90 percent of all the households out of 14,600 had been fully evicted. And so you could see this kind of gradual transformation of a vibrant neighborhood into a field of rubble. When I came in to do the research, basically, I would be walking through a context in which there'd be vast areas of demolished houses, broken bricks and all of this. And then there'd be these individual houses or a little cluster of houses along a road front still occupied. And so then I would meet people in the places that still existed. And then they would take me to some of the resettlement areas where some of their buddies who had 
already accepted the compensation and left were there. And so through a kind of snowball process, I was able to encounter all of these different cases. And to be clear, a rubble is not just a descriptively present and important for you in the work, but also as you set out in the introduction to the book, it's important for you as um, as an analytical category. You refer to the work of Gaston Gordillo that rubble is the quintessential sign of our times. What do you or what did he mean by this? And how does your work build, so to speak, on his well, Gaston Gordillo, his work is really fascinating. In some ways, he's talking about the new materialism, the materiality of rubble, and how this kind of evokes the visceral experience of demolition and transformation. He works in the Argentine Chaco, so his area is actually a much more rural agrarian landscape, uh, but he's describing demolition that goes on and the kind of agrarian transformation and the dust and all of these things that come about. And on some sense, Gaston, his book is extremely rich uh, theoretically in terms of the new materialism and those kinds of things. But analytically, actually, I found that he was a bit one-sided in the kind of symbolic resonance of rubble as purely a sign of destruction, which obviously it is. But what was interesting to me in Vietnam is that rubble has a double valence, like everything I've been talking about. When you destroy something, of course, you're creating the conditions for rebuilding as well. So for me, rubble as an analytic category is actually more polyvalent, to use an anthropological term, right? You know, like Victor Turner used to talk about the polyvalence of symbols. Rubble is like that, too. It has this double meaning, you know, that I really explore throughout the book. One of the features of this part of the discussion that really interested me is how you seem to be straining to hear but but didn't hear the kinds of critiques of the grand plans for District 2 or critiques of neoliberalism in general terms, but rather that the critiques that they had to offer were of rather more narrow sort, that they had been inadequately compensated, that officials were corrupt, that the legal processes had not taken the appropriate course. Could you dwell on this point uh, a bit and explain how it is that this rather narrow critique in the manner of District 2 emerged and perhaps what are the larger implications of this looking at and and thinking with and through this critique for understanding political and social change or or stasis rather in, in Vietnam? You really captured one of the big challenges I felt in this research. I'll be honest. I don't like master plan developments. I think they're doing a lot of violence to the fabric of Southeast Asian cities. So I was expecting that my interlocutors would share that view and they would be saying like, look at these new urban zones, they're destroying our neighborhoods and all of these kinds of things. I didn't experience it in that way. Now, that's not to say that people weren't angry about being evicted. Everyone I met would say, look, I'm being cheated. My land is, I'm I'm not being compensated at the right price and all these kinds of things. There's clearly some corrupt cadre somewhere up there, often unable to say who it was, but there was a very clear articulation that somebody somewhere or some group of people, them, naw, as they would say, them, uh, or they, right? These kind of nebulous others were up to no good and making profits off of them as they were losing land value. And that that was fascinating to me to see the way in which I would be annoyed to lose land value and things like that. But the actual vociferous critique of neoliberalism or something like that was virtually non-existent. And so I started to think about this a little bit in that historical context of Vietnam since 1975, the period I was talking about in the 
first part of this discussion about Vavankip and the fence breaking and all of those kinds of things, where the delivering of property rights in Vietnam for most people that you talk to is associated with a kind of delivering of new freedom. Whether you want to agree with that critically or theoretically or not, that's the way it's often articulated. And not to mention the word neoliberalism, it's translated into Vietnamese as tân tự do or tân tự do chú nghĩa, which means like the new freedom or new freedomism. If you start talking about neoliberalism, you start critiquing it in a kind of Marxian way or something that's quite common in Western academia. There's a disconnect. People are saying to you, what do you mean? You don't like freedom? We finally have a new freedom, which is a very shocking kind of recognition that takes place. And so what I wanted to do is understand that. And this is where the book gets a little complicated. And perhaps people will debate whether I'm correct or not. But what I start to argue is that there's a transformation of a kind of consciousness of freedom or rights and those kinds of like big topic issues into the value of land. There's a kind of conflation between rights and what I call money and meters. Now, there's a logic to that, and I'm not saying people are wrong for thinking that. Of course, I'm going to fight for my rights if I'm stripped of what I think is valuable. And there's a certain power that comes with being able to articulate your injustice. Let me give you an example. Say I go to a court of law and they say, okay, uh, Mr. Harms, what are you mad about? What are you, what are you petitioning right here? I say, well, I have a piece of land that's worth a million dollars and they took it and they gave me a hundred thousand dollars. I feel that's an injustice. My injustice is $900,000. It's like a quantifiable idiom of injustice. And they could say, well, why did that happen? Well, look, I, I'm looking at the market value of the land and they're looking at some kind of abstract government you know, issued edict about what land value in this district is. And that's like $900,000 different from the market value. I'm clearly violated. I've been wronged and I can take that to a court of law, but there's an unexpected result of turning to that market valuation of rights in that it fully and completely articulates land as a commodity. And it's precisely that process. And this is, there's a kind of all these things happening at once. It's precisely that process articulating land primarily as a commodity, which is driving all of these real estate developments in Ho Chi Minh City. And so what I'm trying to articulate in the book is a, this kind of double process where on the one hand, people find in this language, a new way of speaking of their rights, which is quite bold and empowering in all kinds of ways, but it's founded on the very logic which is leading to the same processes that are forcing them to have to stand up and fight for their rights. And so to me, th this is all logical. And in fact, you know, this is where anthropologists should be working with economists in real estate development to, to figure these things out in a very serious, systematic manner. But it leads to these almost intractable kind of political battles. And uh, to me, it's a bit of a pity that rights, you know, this grand, important concept, rule of law, all of these things become reduced in some sense to battles over the value of property. And that's something that I worried about when I was started writing this book. And I started to realize that, in fact, the people in Tutiam and the people in Fumihung, although they're on different sides of this battle, actually kind of share a similar conception of 
land and value and property and all of these things that was very surprising to me. And in fact, when the Tutim people were rising up, fighting for their rights, they were, in many cases, really just fighting for better land value. Mm. And yet this brings us precisely to the note on which you conclude the book when you say that while indeed the conception of the people who, as I understand it, don't actually interact very greatly, if at all, in these two districts may be very similar, the implications for both are very different. And the struggle for political awareness and civic consciousness in the two districts, quote, may share the same language of rights, as we've just heard you say, but what those rights actually mean for people living in the midst of either luxury or rubble couldn't be more different. For some, those rights are little more than a tautology for others avoid. Some listeners may get the cue here, but for those who don't, what is this reference to tautology and void? And returning to the points that you've just made, why did you feel the need to end the book on this somewhat pessimistic note? I had been directed to the work of Jacques Rancière. I'm not a Rancière scholar, but as I was reading Jacques Rancière, who that final sentence is referencing or riffing off of it, it just really struck me that in both of these places, people are fighting for rights. And in Fumi Hung, people are fighting for rights that they already have, which is something that Rancière kind of talks about. Rights is a kind of tautology. I fight for my rights and I have my rights. And then in Tutiam, you had people who were fighting for the same rights that they don't have. And in a sense, they're fighting for that which they'll never have, which is the void that he's talking about. It's a very depressing kind of statement. The reason I went in that pessimistic direction in the conclusion of the book is because it resonated with exactly what I was seeing empirically on the ground. And so it seemed to me that coming back to the story of when rights becomes reduced to a question of money and meters, this is where I think maybe I make a little bit of a contribution. How do you explain what Rancière is talking about? Well, let's look at rights as an idea. It's not a zero-sum game. There's not like if you, Nick Cheeseman, have rights, therefore I've lost my rights because there's only enough rights to go around. And if you have them, then I can't have them. No, in, in the ideal sense of a right, all humans have them. Now, land is different. Land is a limited resource. You live in a city, there's only so much land that can be distributed in certain ways. If you have more land than me, there's a good chance I'll have less. So if our rights become reduced to a quantification of money and meters, that's an inherently a limited resource. And to me, that's a dangerous path to go down when rights itself, if they've conflated with each other, they too become a limited resource, in which case some people have more and some people have less. And that's kind of why I ended in that pessimistic note. I don't want that to be the case, but I want to raise it as a philosophical question for my friends in Vietnam to be talking about. And as you just noted, uh, in some ways, the conclusion is a provocation for your friends and counterparts in Vietnam to get them talking. And how have readers in Vietnam received and commented on the book? There's been a, a very positive reception to the book in Vietnam. Part of it, I think, is quite basic, to be honest. There are some controversies going on in Tutiam about, you know, this compensation. And to have a foreign scholar be able to write about it, just tell the story as it is, right? They can, in a sense, quote me without making a kind of political statement. And so they could just translate large passages of the book. And so I get lots of 
little comments and reader comments and things like that. But also, I've been surprised the book itself is being translated cover to cover by a university press in Vietnam. The scholarly community has been really quick to engage with the book. I will say that some people disagree with my pessimistic conclusions, and I'm happy that they disagree because I don't want the pessimistic conclusion to be the right one. And in fact, there have been some internal politics in Vietnam in the past year that have led to some investigations in Tutiem. I don't think the investigations are benefiting from my book. They're actually in the Vietnamese government is leading the investigations. And some of those protests that I kind of say, you know, lead to eviction, but not much, have actually given some fuel, I think, to the investigations and some party members maybe tried on corruption charges and things like that. So if I was to rewrite that conclusion, I would maintain the pessimism, but also be a little bit more vocal about the way in which, even in a moment of despair, fighting for one's rights is not a lost cause. Because once the legal apparatus becomes possible, all of those things that in one context don't really deliver one material benefit can ultimately be resurrected when the political circumstances are ripe for the pursuit of social justice. Yeah. I just want to say on that last point, though, it really depends on these legal institutions and systems. Eric, this is your second notable and highly regarded book on urban and peri-urban Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City. Can we expect another in the next few years? You've got to turn your attention elsewhere. Right now, I have the luxury of a fellowship called the Mellon New Directions Fellowship, which allows me to go back to school. So I've been taking courses on GIS and mapping. And the reason I'm doing this is I want to explore more comparatively across Southeast Asia, these processes of eviction and displacement. And I want to be able to look kind of at a more uh, regional and not global level, but a, a, like Southeast Asia level in a sense, to actually start visually mapping these spaces of eviction and bring ethnographers together with the city planners and other kind of development-oriented type people to really start addressing some of the challenges of displacement that we see just all over Southeast Asia and other parts of Asia as well. But I'm a Southeast Asianist, so I want to focus there. Ethnography, you have to speak the language. You have to do long-term field work, which I will continue doing in Vietnam. But I'm not going to pretend that I'm going to learn all the languages of Southeast Asia. So to do comparison I'm kind of stepping up my methodological toolkit a little bit to be able to work at a different level while maintaining my research program in Vietnam too. Eric Harms, congratulations on getting the fellowship and skilling up. And thanks a lot for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss luxury and rubble. Thank you very much, Nick. It was a pleasure being here. Uh, it's a pleasure for me as well. And thanks to everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you have any comments on this episode or any other episode on the channel, or if you have suggestions for authors whom you think ought to be featured, don't hesitate to write to me or my co-host Patrick Jory and let us know. Our email addresses are available on the website and we promise we'll reply. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.